and welcome to another edition of the Purple Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and I have with me, as always, my co-host, and we have a very special guest this week, the first podcast where you get to hear live and in dog, uh, the one, the only, Max Doggin. Uh, there, there's not a lot of TCU news that went on this past week, but uh, the most important news is that, um, Grant, you, you have a dog, and his name is Max Doggin. Uh, elaborate for our listeners. I do have Max Doggin, and you may hear him yapping repeatedly in the background because he does not like his kennel. Uh, yeah, I was driving down from visiting old TC friends in DFW two Sundays ago, a shelter in Navasota that I've been in contact uh, contact with texted me and said, hey, um, we have a dog. Uh, he'll be available this afternoon and no other time. Would you like him? I said, sure enough. So I met him at a Bucky's in Cypress, Texas. He is a half Akita, half blue tick hound. Um, he is two months old today. And uh, his name is Max Doggin. He is a very sweet, very biting dog that is currently in his kittle and not enjoying it. He's the best. That is, um, that is wonderful. That's hard to beat. I don't know that I have more to say about it other than just like you gotta, you know, he's he's all over your Instagram now. It used to be, yes. it used to be TCU. It used to be pop culture. It used uh-huh. to be golf, and now it is the dog. And and I, I applaud that move. I think it's a great brand move. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very proud of that. It is Max Doc. He's his coat. <laughs> I'm trying to make it reddish brown, just so we can kind of Max, you uh, kind of match Max Duggan's kind of reddish blonde thing he's got going on. It's just straight up brown but uh, i'm just telling myself things uh, i'm very excited for him to watch his first game uh with max duggan behind center and just kind of meet his namesake see if he can kind of adopt that personality uh that that duggan has going for him but uh yeah man yeah exciting times here in the mcgallard household parker i have to ask before we get into uh our our big interview um how's the wilderness wilderness is good um i uh this weekend took a um a sojourn out into the wilderness um, uh, a state park in, uh, in the great state of Wyoming. Mm. Um, and, uh, it was, it was delightful. Um, I was, I was surprised at how beautiful it was. I walked on a waterfall that was frozen mm. over into a cave underneath the frozen waterfall. Terrifying. Wow. Amazing. Very cool. Um, yeah. So we're, we're breathing the mountain, the mountain air. We're, um, conducting all sorts of business meetings, um, I've been DMing college coaches that are in my vicinity to no avail, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's fine. Your bridge to Terabithia stuff out there. Did you ever you read know, that book when you were in high school? I or did. Oh, no, I, I, I think it, I think it was like sixth grade. It was the same. Yeah, it was middle school. It was middle school. Yeah. There yeah. was some controversy because I believe maybe I'm wrong about this. Does, does that word, does that have a naughty word in it? I th- I don't remember which one it is. I I know there's some controversy about. Um, I, I think they say yeah, some curse subject. words in that, and yeah, um, yeah, we we there was there was some deep conversations about um, morality and and uh, vocabulary uh, as I read it, both in school and at home. Yeah, there was. Um, I remember the the girl in that book calls her parents by their first names, and I remember people are like, oh, oh like is gosh. she like a like some sort of like hippie? Like you know, that was kind of a um, a touchy subject. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm probably I'm probably the lesser for for knowing that for reading that book. I, honestly. Yeah. I, I only call my mom Carrie when she beats me in words with friends and I get mad at her. I've never called my mom her first name. Uh, I would <laughs> never do that. Uh, other other big news. My mom got a Rona shot. Um, she has a heart condition. Yeah. So we were a little bit not 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 worried, but we're very, very relieved that she has the um, has the Rona shot. So um, I want to come out. I'm, I'm going to make a statement. I haven't run this by you. 
Purple Theory podcast is pro-vaccine. Oh, I'm getting it Thursday. Oh, nice. First dose. Yeah. And both my parents are vaccinated. So yeah, we're pro-vaccine. I, I need to uh, I need to figure out what that looks like being a Texan abroad and, and getting mm. one. But um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm optimistic we're going to have life as we know it uh, this fall. Uh, I, I, I will tell you this. I plan on drinking um, no fewer than nine beers at a tailgate at a TCU game in the fall, um, unmasked. So it would be, would be nice, man. Would yeah, be nice. It'd be very nice. Oh man. I hope that like someone in 2024 is just in love with what purple theory has become. And they come back and listen to this podcast <laughs> and they think what a funny time people were wearing masks. If, and... if you're listening to this in 2024, seek professional help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or just like call me. I'm probably lonely and don't have <laughs> right, a lot to do. That's true. On second thought, I will, I'll be on Twitter. I'll talk to you. Yeah. That's I'll fine. talk to you. Yeah. Um, cool. The only other thing that I just feel obligated to plug is like, Grant, I did not know that I was going to learn to become a full stack web developer to update cfb-graphs.com. Mm-hmm. And I am becoming a full stack web developer and it sucks. Uh, it is very tedious. It's not like difficult. It is just organization is a skill that is not mine. Um, so I've been, I've been head in the, like, if you thought I was a code monkey before doing all this, you know, graphs and everything, I am, I am neck deep in visual studio code and JavaScript and all this nonsense. But I, I think the payoff for the, for the site is going to be really, really cool. So I'm really excited about that. First off, I'll tell you this, uh, cfp-graphs.com looks great. Um, you've sent me some demo sites, you did me some stats. It, it, it's, it's all incredibly functional. It's all really beautiful and really simple. And I really admire it. Um, I promise this is a football podcast, but we're going to do a special quick edition of explain it like an idiot. What does full stack mean? Cause I see that all the time and I don't know what the hell it means. Is someone's going to correct me. Who is, uh, Nick, Nick Myers. He's going to, he's going to correct me. Podcast listener, Twitter follower, friend, uh, not in that order, probably other, other order, but, um, so, so web development is like, you can do stuff on the back end, which is like, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm querying data. I'm, I'm doing the security. I'm setting up all this stuff. Or you can do the front end, which is like the UI, which is the pretty user interface, pretty graphs. How does it work when I click this? Where does it go? And so the way that like a marketing agency, for instance, who does a website or a branding agency, what they'll do is they'll sit down and talk to you and be like, Hey, what are your visions? What are your goals? What are the functionalities you want? Then they'll send that over to a UI designer who's like a trained technical graphic designer who looks at ratios of pixels on different devices, who looks at mobile versus whatever, and kind of lays out a web page. And then they send that to a, a, a front-end developer who codes that in HTML and CSS. And then if there's any functionality like forms, um, linking kind of data, updated APIs, all that nonsense, that's kind of where the back end comes. Full stack developer does all of that. And so gotcha. what I'm doing is I, I'm, I'm using a, a JavaScript client to kind of query data. And so what happens is instead of me, what, instead of me building 130 HTML pages by hand, that's like one for Air Force, one for Army, one for TCU, one for Texas, like all that. I am building a JavaScript app that like, th- this is going to reveal my ignorance, but it programmatically uh, creates all these pages. So when you click mm. Air Force, it goes to this template and it queries all Air Force's data. And then it shows you this really nice thing. And so the, the individual pieces aren't very hard, but what's very hard is getting this whole thing together, organizing it. And then my aesthetic standards are, are probably ridiculous, but I'm like, I need this to be perfect down to the pixel. And so some of that stuff has been a little finicky, but I think by the NFL draft, it should be, it should be 
it should be pretty cool. Hell yeah, man. I'm excited. Uh, yeah. This will be a great resource uh, for like, not just TCU fans, like for college football fans. It's I'm like, you've got to see what Parker's working on. It's really good stuff. I'm, I'm hoping so. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty great. So um, that is, that is far too much talking about me. Um, Grant, <laughs> we've got a great guest tonight, yes. Alex Kirshner of the moon crew and the split zone duo podcast. Uh, your friend and mine uh, came on tonight just to talk about big picture stuff in college football. It is, it is peak off season. Spring workouts mm-hmm. are about to start. We haven't really gotten the influx of videos of guys lifting ridiculous things. Shout out to Tristan Wirfs who last year cleaned 405 450 Something like that yeah and made it look easy anything above 200 is terrifying to me so yeah whatever it could it could have been 400 it could have been 4000 it's all the same it's uh amazing to me um so so we're kind of in this lull of the off season and so it's a good time to kind of look back and say hey what are the trends in college football where are the sport headed what's going on on and off the on and off the field so some really good stuff with alex there um grant people can find you on twitter at grant mcgalliard spelled like it sounds with all those vowels i am of course stats of war make sure you subscribe to the purple theory newsletter uh i i don't want to i don't want to toot our toot our horn here but we just got our hands on some all 22 so Whew, uh, buddy we're gonna have some content can i use my curse word yeah Shit's about to get real grant oh uh yeah, yeah. So that's pretty fun. Real, real. And, uh, and we'll continue leaking stuff out there. Um, I have no comment on the subscriber situation. Uh, we're just deferring that for another month. That's okay. Perfect. Uh, if you have problems with that, DM me. I, anything you've paid for, you have credit for. Obviously, it's not a big yeah. deal. So um, we're, just, we're just pushing that back into, into later times. Um, okay, let's, let's talk to Alex. This is a great interview. Uh, excited for you guys to hear. Yep, go Frogs. Joining us, we have Alex Kirshner uh, on the podcast. Alex is of Moon Crew LLC and the Split Zone Duo podcast. Alex, how are you doing? Doing great, fellas. Thank you for having me on. Excited to talk well, TCU and anything else with you guys. Yeah, we were going to have you on uh, last week to just kind of talk about how sane and normal the University of Texas is, kind of how everything's great down there in Austin. Um, I, I know you have a lot of thoughts about how just normal and good um, Texas has been in the last month or so. Yeah, that's a functional program that has no long-term icebergs staring right in the face and uh, definitely no propensity at all to shoot itself in the foot for less than a good reason. So I think everything is great. So we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the big picture stuff, but just if you're Steve Sarkeesian hopping into this mess off the rip, like what do you do in that situation? Because that's got to be hard for him. Well, I'm looking for houses because I have a lot of money uh, and I'm thinking about good investment vehicles uh, in which to park some of the considerable funds that Texas is paying me. And I'm also thinking about what a $20 million buyout might look like in three years, uh, because I don't think there is a great option for him uh, to satisfy all of the parties that he needs to satisfy. Uh, I think that on the eyes of Texas specifically, this is not necessarily the one thing that's going to tank Texas recruiting and make their team uh, unable to rise in the big 12. But I do think that he has a long-term problem, which is that uh, the donor community at Texas, or at least a, a vocal faction of it wants one thing. And that is not the same thing as the thing that the players that he actually needs to play football for him in order to win games wants. 
and that's an issue. And uh, I don't think that he has the Devonte Smiths sitting right there to bail him out of that problem. Uh, so he's got some work to do, but fortunately he's very well paid. So it's on him to do it. Can I, my, my favorite thing to do on a podcast is invite someone smart on and then say a thing and get their affirmation. So I'm going to do that. Here's my, here's my theory, Alex. I'm just going to throw this at you. What Texas is lacking is someone to come in and say, shut up and let me win some football games and, and let me run this and we can take care of this later. Uh, I, I don't think there's any more pound for pound crazy at the University of Texas than there is at the University of Alabama. I just think the University of Alabama uh, is more deferential. And I do believe that for, for a moment, I thought Chris Del Conte might be the guy to come in and say like, hey, I'm going to run this like a business. We're going to make the right decisions. We're going to start winning again. Uh, I, I don't know that Sark can come in and be that guy that just says, hey, shut up and let me take care of this for a little bit. Get in line. Because uh, that's really what Texas needs. I agree with you. Checks out to me. I think part of Nick Saban's genius aside from the fact that he has won a lot and the recruiting is sort of a self-sustaining operation at this point and that he knows football very well, is that he has convinced a lot of very rich, very influential people at Alabama to just shut up and hang tight and give him money when he needs it and not get in his way, not do things that would jeopardize the number one perch in college football recruiting that he has built at Alabama. And it works great. And you see the results every year. You just saw maybe the peak of those results uh, in the pandemic season in 2020. I totally agree. If Texas could get that, uh, I think they would be on the straight and narrow and things would be very good. Problem is that Texas has almost never had that. And when you look at who has been successful there this century, really just Mac Brown, that's a unique politician, a, a guy who has a unique glad handing ability to achieve something like what Saban achieves just by being the guy. Uh, and I'm not sure, I, I guess we will see if, if Sark fits into one of those molds or the other, but it's, it's hard to bet on it because there's, there's only one Saban and honestly, there aren't very many Mac Browns either. And, and Saban and Mac Brown both have that little bit of grandpa quality. Like you've got to have the mm -hmm. sternness, but they also have that like sweet old grandpa, just, just a very, very little bit that goes a long way. Um, Grant, I, I think I cut you off there, sorry. No, I was just going to say Parker recommended someone that wanted to come in and run things like a business to get back to winning. And I'm trying to remember the last time we appointed someone to a high office like that and didn't go so well. Um, Alex also wanted to ask too, you mentioned kind of how Saban has this massive, you know, recruiting advantage, things like that. Um, Texas, you know, they have a new head coach coming in this year. This big Texas Tribune article comes out where they expose all of these ridiculous boosters in the odds of Texas controversy players are getting more power as they should. Um, do you think this kind of hurts Texas recruiting base? I mean, I think of the top 10 players in Texas, only one is committed to the Longhorns for 2022. Um, I just, I just don't think this, I don't know. I, I just think this hurts Texas's um, stature among top high school players, which is probably obvious, but I don't know. I think time will tell. I'm sure that it doesn't help. Uh, I'm not sure that it on its own, is going to be the thing that sinks Texas recruiting. I, I think that the longer Texas remains in the wilderness, the less margin for error you have with recruits who might otherwise be inclined to put up with a certain degree of longhorn bullshit, so to, so to speak. So it all kind of builds on, on you know, one part over another, uh, but it definitely doesn't help. You know, I, I don't think that it does anything good 
for uh, a coach going to try to recruit in a living room. Uh, if there is a, a high school recruit, uh, let's say that this is a black player who is uh, not thrilled about going and playing uh, under a, a fairly, you know, fairly obviously racist banner like the eyes of Texas, it can't help. And, right. and, and I think the same thing could apply to, you know, uh, social justice minded white players. I don't think it's, you know, entirely something that applies to one racial group, but uh, young people don't see this the same way that Texas's booster community does. And at some point, those two things do come into conflict and it, it doesn't help recruiting at all. In many ways, uh, the University of Texas at Austin is uh, much like America. Um, we could talk about the craziness in Texas for, for a long time, uh, but I think I'm going to curb us there and kind of steer into, um, let, let's, go, let's go a different direction. Uh, I want to talk about tectonic plates. I don't know if you guys remember third grade science class. Um, I, I, I was, I, I'll let you know, I was in the advanced and gifted classes, so this might be a little bit much, but I remember talking about tectonic plates and tectonic plates are... Um, these big pieces of earth underneath the earth and every, you know, hundred years, they move like half a centimeter and you could never feel them moving, but they're these forces that are just constantly moving towards a head. And then at one point over the course of hundreds of years, they slam into each other and you get tidal waves and volcanoes and earthquakes and all sorts of movements. And so uh, Alex, I want to have you specifically on uh, to talk about some of these tectonic plates that have been moving in college football that are coming to a head now, specifically in 2021. Um, so that, that can be kind of all over the place. And I think it's going to be hard to talk about those without talking about the COVID year, um, because I do believe that kind of laid bare some, some of the fragilities of the uh, institutional framework that is college athletics um, and perhaps college in general. Um, and so, so I kind of want to start there with the, the, the most hot button issue and talk about NIL, uh, name and likeness. Um, Alex, look into your crystal ball in five years. Where, where's NIL going? Are players, are players going to get played? Are we going to get minor leagues in college football? Is this insurrection going to get quashed and things are going to go back to how they always were? What do you think the forces are kind of moving towards and how do you see that shaking out? I think that in five years, we will live in a world where college athletes have a reasonable degree of autonomy to go and get paid for endorsements, advertisements, for the use of their name, image, and likeness in a platform like a video game or anything else, uh, or I shouldn't say anything else because I think there will probably be some guardrails, uh, guardrails being the term that, that athletic administrators like to use. I don't think that you are gonna be allowed to uh, be a, a college athlete and wear the university's logo in a commercial. I don't think you are gonna allow, be allowed to uh, advertise for a gambling company or a porn company or alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that within a couple of years, there's going to be certainly more freedom than there has ever been uh, and less than there should be, but more than there's ever been for college athletes to monetize themselves a little bit. It'll be like, um, I remember those, uh, gosh, was it Cam Newton? who is doing no it's Dak Prescott who does the 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 suit commercials and he's wearing like a blue jersey that has his number that's like it's not a Cowboys jersey but it is a Cowboys jersey right. I imagine we'll see a lot of that I'd imagine so and I think that there's something to this you know you might have seen recently that a lot of schools are coming out with these statements that are like we are not going to participate in the new EA Sports college football video game until there is an equitable system in place to show that our student athletes are valued. 
they're trying to score points because they know which way this is going to, they are not going to sit out the video game and suffer the recruiting disadvantage that would come from not being in the video game. Uh, they're aware that this is going to change probably in the next two years, by the time that video game comes back uh, and are just sort of telegraphing how much they care uh, in, in a low risk fashion. Yeah. And you mentioned recruiting advantages and, and that's something I think that has been sort of a counter argument against this, even though it's, not necessarily a great one, but the kind of argument is that, oh, well, players will just go to Alabama, LSU, Texas, whoever, because they can afford to, or they will, they will make more money there because of the, the likeness and all that. But the thing is, Alex, those players that go there are getting paid already. It's just under the table. Um, how do you think this, that this would affect recruiting? I mean, I don't think it would necessarily make the rich any richer, would it? No, I don't think necessarily. I, part of the reason that I don't think that is that there's not a lot more room for, college football recruiting to be lopsided in favor of the schools at the top. Uh, the same handful of schools lead the recruiting rankings and lead the playoff conversation every year. Uh, at worst, things would stay the same. Uh, I think that it's much more plausible that there would be select cases where a compelling name, image, and likeness opportunity actually might bring a player away from a school like that to a different market uh, where he could be more of a standout. Uh, mm -hmm. The simplest example that comes to my mind is imagine there is a four-star running back who uh, has an offer from Alabama. Well, if you're a four-star running back and you go to Alabama, then congrats, you're playing on special teams uh, or you're redshirting. Uh, if you're not a five-star that you're, you are not in the top two of that, of that depth chart. Uh, that's fine. You're probably still going to the NFL or going to have a decent chance of going to the NFL. Uh, but you might not have much of a market if you want to make a couple thousand dollars a year uh, in the NIL market. So maybe you go to some big 10 town where you have a bit more of an opportunity to do that. I'm not saying that you'd stay home in Toledo and play in the Mac though, who knows, but it, it at least logically follows to me that there could be cases where there'd be the kind of recruiting win for a smaller team that is exceedingly rare right now not going to say it levels the playing field on a broader basis, but maybe in, in some isolated incident, uh, instances, it would. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's interesting that you say that too. It's like, it, there literally is a finite pool of recruits. And so inequality can only go so far because there are limited scholarship spots. Mm -hmm. I want to ask a weird question. And Grant, I want your, I want to get your opinion on this first. And then I want to ask Alex about this. I feel like four or five years ago, it was really popular Maybe, maybe it's like 10 years ago. I don't know. Time is just this vast uh, mystery to me, uh, the older I get. But like they're talking about, uh, I heard a lot about the Olympic model of amateurism mm -hmm. in college football, maybe, maybe five, 10 years ago. And I feel like as NIL has increased, that kind of verbiage has gone away. But it, it, unless I'm just uh, completely out of my mind here, the Olympic model is you're, you're an amateur. You don't get paid to compete in the Olympics, you don't get paid to play college football, but you can sign all the endorsements you want. Why has like Olympic model fallen out of fashion in terms of like the, the words there? I, I don't know if that's something I've noticed, if that's something I'm just missing or what. Grant, what do you think about that? And no, Alex's thoughts? no, no, I, I think you're right. I don't necessarily have an answer for you. I, I think that um, sort of the administration the NCAA has been woefully unprepared for the player empowerment movement that is you know, really kind of bloomed over the last few years. Um, I, I don't know why the Olympic uh, model has fallen out of fashion. I look, I'm not necessarily advocating for players to like earn a salary playing football for 
whatever school, but if they should be able to earn name, image, likeness, all that, which basically is the Olympic model, right? Unless I'm missing something. That's about it. Yeah. 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 I, I just, I, I don't, I don't know cult, why. Culture is weird and vocabulary is weird. It's just, it's just odd to me that that has, has largely fallen out when I think that a lot of people, maybe, maybe it's just that push failed. And so we're not, not weird. There's no, you know, cabal of whatever, but like people are trying a, a, a different way to kind of talk about it. But I thought that was just kind of interesting that, um, that, that has, that has gone away. Um, the other thing about NIL that I thought was really interesting, um, kind of comes into the idea of like JUCO and, uh, you know, I just wonder how, like, the transition from JUCO to Division One is right now. Hey, I don't have the grades, or there's you know a black mark on my resume, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go somewhere and kind of figure it out, and then and then potentially jump up. And with NIL, that expected value calculation becomes weirder. So it's like, do I want to go to a JUCO for a little bit, or does someone like the proverbial Toledo change kind of their admission standards to to have a uh, a larger fence so they can get some of those guys that might've gone to Juco, they can start getting some NIL money. Uh, and then they can maybe jump up if there's the one-time free transfer. Do we get kind of a farm league uh, with the, with the G5, Alex? What do you, how do you see Juco and then the G5 kind of factoring in with the potential for these, Hey, I can get some more money going to Toledo than I can in a Wamba community college. I think that the farm system thing is often talked about and yet to be borne out even when rules changes have shown increased paths for that to happen. Uh, not to say that they're going to be even. I mean, I think that the G5 will still, you know, un unfortunately probably be relegated. I mean, you guys at, at TCU know, know better than anybody the difference between being on one side of this fence and on the other. I think, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of schools that are just not allowed up and that are kind of stuck in that clear lower tier status but when we talk about farm system you know that's a little different relationship and people like to say you know if you have open transfer rules for instance then every good player in the group of five is just going to go and take a power five transfer offer and that just doesn't make mathematical sense it's just not how people's brains really work i mean of course there are going to be some who want to do that but you still have scholarship math in front of you you still have people who love being at a, at a given place where they've had success so I don't see the farm system thing per se emerging to any great extent. Yeah. And I think there's enough room, especially with the, I feel like the NFL hasn't, I mean, Alabama will obviously have five or six first and second round picks every year, but I feel like there's enough room if you're trying to get drafted to stand out at a G5 school, especially with water media coverage to where you can still earn a first or second round draft pick if you're a player. I think Khalil Mack at Buffalo, uh, Antonio Bryant coming out of whichever directional Michigan school. And I know there's always exceptions to the rule, but there's so many exceptions. It seems like that, that sort of worry that, hey, I need to play at, you know, generic P5 school to get a draft spot probably isn't, you know, it, it, it's not the same anymore, right? I don't think it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, there've been for, for many decades in the NFL, great players that have come out of uh, non-power programs. I mean, you know, Roger Staubach went to a service mm -hmm. academy. Um, I don't think that it's anything uh, all that new. I don't think it precludes you from making a big leap at the pro level. Uh, I, I, my understanding from just having talked over the years around draft time to agents or other media members who are pretty plugged into this stuff is that, you know, it's a data point and maybe you need to show a little more. Um, if you are a great receiver in the Mac, uh, 
awesome. They're going to want to see something from you at your pro day or at the combine. Uh, Devontae Smith does not have to show anything at his pro day uh, or at the combine. Doesn't matter. He could Mm -hmm. he could be sitting around having a beer. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is the difference, but it's not an insurmountable difference if you are a G five player. Tangential side note: Did you see the video of Devonta Smith and Henry Ruggs racing? I heard about it, but I oh didn't my gosh! See it. I think I Ted Ted Wynn of the Athletic retweeted it the other day. Because I think Henry Ruggs on the Athletic or the not what's the Oakland football team? For the love of God, the, the Raiders, Raiders, not the Athletics. Um, wow! This <laughs> yeah, is a and, baseball podcast. And Devonta Smith and and Henry Ruggs were like that. There was not a clear winner. That was um, very impressive. Okay. I, yeah. So, so that, that's all, that's all interesting to me. And I, I think we go down marginalia there. I'm, I'm going to keep us moving just for the sake of uh, all, all sorts of uh, intrigue that I, I just have a million questions that I think Alex, you have some good insight on. So um, Alex, our, our listener base, our, our, our followers are, are, are very smart, intelligent college football fans, but let's pretend that they are all morons who only watch the big 12. Okay. Why should they care about coastal Carolina and Cincinnati getting left out of the playoff last year? Well, uh, if you want the simplest answer, it's because wouldn't you rather see them get in than a bad Oklahoma team with one loss that you know what the outcome is going to be and you don't feel like watching the Sooners lose to some powerful SEC team by 40 points? There's that. Um, if, if you are not the kind of root for the conference fan that some people are in college sports. Uh, but I think the biggest reason why you should care is that if you're a Big 12 fan, you're a college football fan. And you should want college football's postseason to be as fun and as accessible to as many teams as makes sense. Uh, I say as makes sense because I don't think that you need a 64 team or a 68 team uh, FBS playoff. But the more that that event is accessible for the G5, honestly, the more it is probably accessible for teams in the kind of tier one a, or I guess just the tier B because Oklahoma is kind of the top tier at this point of the big 12, uh, you know, in a, in a world where coastal Carolina or Cincinnati would have had a prayer at the playoff last year, Iowa state would have had the same prayer at the playoff, uh, going down to the wire. I think that that would have added a little extra juice to some of Iowa state's games in the latter part of the year. I think that people talk about, playoff expansion uh, or about recognizing the G5 like it is a handout to lesser teams that don't deserve it. Uh, And I don't think that's the right way to see it. I think you should see it as almost a public good where sure, this creates more access for teams that don't have it right now, but it also broadens the playing field and and creates access for teams that uh, have a a technical shot now, but don't really because Mm -hmm. they have a loss early in the year. You just yeah. said you just said public good on a podcast hosted by an economist. If I had more gold stars to give you, um, you would you would get them. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the argument too. Is like it's an idea of of merit, right? So I'm looking at uh, our, our friend Brian Freemel's uh, FEI ratings, right? Advanced drive based stats, just to, just kind of measure to say, hey, here's opponent adjusted metrics. One one through four, you know, you've got Alabama, Clemson. Ohio State and and they had BYU fourth. I think that's probably the opponent adjustments are a little rough there. But so one through four there with with five being Oklahoma, and you know six is Buffalo, seven is Coastal Carolina, eight is Cincinnati, nine's Iowa State, ten is Notre Dame. I only read those to say that gets real messy after number four, right? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a solid opinion. I, I have a solid opinion about Alabama versus Buffalo. Sure. I don't know that I have a solid opinion about Cincinnati versus what we saw out of Clemson, uh, Ohio state versus, you know, what Notre Dame did. I, I don't know that I have huge, huge differences there, but I will say, I don't know that I have a huge difference between Buffalo and Appalachian state uh, who's, who's 22nd or Northwestern who's 21st. So I feel like there's like a huge gap after, you know, the number one team. And a lot of time they kind of, a lot of times people make this ad hoc argument of like, well, Alabama's going to win anyway. So you just want to see them blow somebody out. And it's like, man, I, I think Alabama's going to blow out teams, you know, two through 24. Right. I don't know the way that a team who goes undefeated and decisively wins their conference. I don't know why they don't have a legitimate path to at least try to play for a championship. I totally agree. I like, there are people who I think understandably advocate that the playoff should be as many teams as our championship caliber. Well, last year, what you are saying, and I accept this if you want to take it to the logical extreme, is that there should not have been a playoff. Mm. It is that Alabama should have been declared the national champion after it won the SEC championship. Or if you want to take it way back, just after the regular season. That is the way college football did it for a long time. Uh, Not that they were doing it out of any sense of equity, but just that's the way it was. And uh, that is fine if that's what you want to do. I would put my chips in the basket that I don't want to, I don't want that. Uh, I don't want a two team playoff. I don't want a four team playoff. I would like eight. I think that it would be more fun. The point about Cincinnati is really interesting. I mean, they outplayed Georgia for much of that game in the Peach Bowl this year. They played their starting left tackle out for half for an entire half and uh, you know, a backup who had two left thumbs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Played them equally. Uh, I do think Bama would have crushed them, but there would have been something to it about seeing Cincinnati play Clemson. I'm not sure that Cincinnati would have gotten blown out by Clemson, given the way Clemson looked uh, against Ohio state. I think that Cincinnati's secondary would have been pretty stout against Trevor Lawrence and Clemson's receivers. I mean, that was the best secondary in college football, maybe outside Alabama. So why not? It's fun. You know, if we're just making decisions based on the fact that Alabama is going to win anyway, uh, then we are going to very quickly shrink the available opportunities to see good postseason football games, because that is sure, mostly inevitable much of the time. Yeah. And and every single podcast, college football podcast in the world, uh, Parker, I think once told me that every single uh, uh, college freshman dude in the world had an opinion on how to expand the playoff at some point. Uh, I think the phrase is every single chubby white dude in college has a notebook yeah. in which the back of he he's drawn a realignment map for college. Football. Right. Which <laughs> I did. I know Parker did as well. Um, but I wanted to ask it, it, before we move on in, in the current four team system for the playoff, what is the path for a G five team to make it? If there is one at all, there may not be one. The only one that is possible, but we didn't get to see it proved out is the one that Houston was briefly on in 2016 when they started with Oklahoma. So remember Houston came into that year ranked something. Uh, I think they had won the peach bowl the year before or something against Florida state. Uh, And Houston comes into that year with a decent ranking. They beat Oklahoma in week one and they had another power five game on the schedule. They had Louisville uh, later that year. Uh, They did wind up winning that game. But the problem was that between beating uh, Oklahoma and beating Louisville, they lost, what, two or three games to yeah. teams that they just couldn't lose to, um, to, to AAC teams. And that's that, uh, because mm-hmm. you, you obviously have to go undefeated uh, if you are going to be a G5 and have any kind of prayer in the playoff. 
So it's very hard and it's, you know, it's not particularly fair because there is no way to plan out a schedule the way college football scheduling works if it's not a pandemic to guarantee that you're going to have a shot at somebody who is worth beating for playoff discussions. How can you predict that when you're scheduling games six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years in advance? It's impossible. And it's even made more impossible when power five teams just don't have to play you uh, if they think you're going to be a risk of beating them, which is just smart business on, on the part of those teams. Right. I remember watching that uh, Houston, Oklahoma game at a top golf uh, in DFW. Which, yeah, anyway. yeah. Fun memories. All right, Alex, we're going to make a hard uh, turn into coaches and we'll kind of spin off nationally in a minute, but I do want to talk about TCU. Um, Gary Patterson is not going to be TCU's head coach in 2025, unless something extremely strange happens. Um, a national championship, maybe. Uh, but Alex, I want to ask with a legacy coach like Gary Patterson, who has been at TCU for 20 years, TCU does not have a, coach in waiting and there's really no consensus among the TCU fan base for who the frogs should hire to replace Gary Patterson. What pitfalls do programs find when they try to replace a coach who's been there for a while? I know Iowa will have to hit this with Kirk Ferentz. Uh, Florida State had to do it with Bowden, uh, Virginia Tech with Beamer, all that. Um, I know it's a tough position, but but what do programs have to kind of look for in a coach to replace a a, a quote-unquote legend? I don't know if there's one thing that you – would look for because I think we've seen different schools try to do it different ways and with varying degrees of success. Um, you know, one of the classic examples that comes to my mind is Virginia Tech hires Justin Fuente from Memphis a couple of years ago after Frank Beamer retires. That checked every box that you could possibly want uh, if you're just looking at like on paper, is this coaching hire going to work? You know, Justin Fuente had a good recruiting reputation. He had ties to all of the areas in which Virginia Tech goes and gets players. Uh, He was young. He talked a good game. He could win the press conference, so to speak. Uh, And it's just not working out. You know, they they are worse now than they have been, uh, I I think, really, you know, since before Frank Beamer took over all those many years ago. And it's just difficult. I mean, we've seen... You know, Nebraska had to do this a number of different times, um, you know, after Devaney and, and Osborne. And uh, you see a program like that, it, it sticks the landing uh, at one point. You know, obviously you kept that dynasty going through different coaches, but then that you get into a revolving door uh, where, you know, you, you hire, whether it's Bill Callahan or Frank Solich or let's eventually you get to obviously Bo Pliny, Mike Riley. <laughs> These are all coaches who had different profiles, right? You know, you, you get Bo Pelini, you're going for the rugged, tough defensive guy. And you, you hope that he can bring back, uh, you know, a hard nosed program like Nebraska had all the years, all those years ago. And it worked well, but not well enough. And it fell apart uh, and he was fired. Uh, and it, it just becomes clear. I almost feel like I'm butting my head into a wall trying to come up with examples of it working the way right. you expect it to work because you, you can't replicate those guys. You know, you, like TCU's yeah. next head coach is not going to be as, as transformative for TCU as, as great of a value add for TCU as Gary Patterson has been. It's just not possible. Even if you take out the uh, jump into the, the power conferences that Gary Patterson made possible, 
how are you going to get 20 years of being one of the better programs in college football at a place like TCU, where obviously it, it had been done before, not that, not saying that TCU didn't have a very proud history uh, with some of the best players in college football history, but no, that was in the thirties. We don't give a shit about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything pre-integration doesn't, doesn't count. Yeah. yeah it doesn't count. Um, yeah. No. But it just isn't, there isn't a roadmap for it. Like mm-hmm. it's, you, you have to get lucky and, and Alabama's going to run into this too. And Clemson's mm-hmm. going to run into this too. And uh, there, I mean, if you guys point me to an example in the last, uh, I don't know, maybe since the Nebraska dynasties uh, where, where a team did it seamlessly. And, and I have one, I have one. Grant's going to take mine. Damn it. Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. Oh no! The one. That's right. That's right. I was. But that I wasn't. Was say, yeah. Since Devaney to Osborne, that honestly might be it. Stoops to Riley. That might. But, that might. But that wasn't coaching waiting. That was like coaching waiting. Hey, but they I'm found really stressed out. I'm probably going to retire. What's best for the program? Let me let me facilitate this transition. I know, but they lucked into it and got it right. My single one is actually I think Chris Kleinman, because oh, Chris Kleinman yeah. is a robot, no person, in a very yeah. good way. I mean that as okay. a compliment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what Kansas State needed after because you remember they hired Seth Lid- or they on paper hired Seth Luttrell and then there was assistant pool and who they were going to have to keep on and all that nonsense. And Kleiman kind of came in and very quietly said like, I'm going to operate within these constraints, but like, this is my program. You don't know a lot about me. And so I think that's really the only way is to kind of be like a, a no person for a little bit after it to let everyone get on board and then kind of go from there. Yeah. It's smart. I think trying to come in and be real flashy um, and tell everyone about what a great job you're going to do and how you're going to really shake things up. Uh, when you're following someone like that is not a recipe for success because uh, if you start one in three in your first mm-hmm. year, people are going to get real sick of that real quick. Mm-hmm. Or, or hearing them talk about, you know, playing um, I'm coming home on game day and showing Scott Frost every week is like, if he's losing games, we don't care if he's a home homegrown son. Like that's actually making it worse at this point. Yeah. At some point, I mean, like, like we've, we've started to see signs of it with Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. Um, and I think it, the time wasn't quite right for them to make a change for a couple of reasons, uh, you know, after last season, but like, he is not a very popular guy right now among that fan base. Uh, and I think Scott Frost has quite a bit of goodwill at Nebraska because of who he is and what he did when he wore pads. But if this keeps up, if the first three years become the next three and it's the same, uh, tough. That is, that is not going to work for, for so long. You know, there's Ed Ogeron and LSU situation has become complicated for reasons much more serious than football. Yeah. But he had the greatest team arguably in the history of the sport a year and two months ago. And if he has a lousy 2021, that man is going to be out of a job. It's just a tough business. Yeah. Um, Alex, we're coming up towards an hour and I don't want to steal a ton of your time. So I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a pivot because I cannot believe I didn't start with Kansas. What the hell is going on? What the hell, man? I don't know. I don't know that we've seen anything like this where it was so blatant (laughs) that a team said, Hey, we're just going to, we're just going to sweep this under the rug that someone else had to dig it up. Like that is just, uh, it's, I want to say it's incredible. It's not, it is very credible. I believe that a hundred percent it happened, but um, just, just the idea that, Les Miles had to go to Kansas and lose a bunch of games and run off a bunch of recruits. And for that to get dug up is just bewildering. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing for Jeff Long, the athletic director at Kansas, the former athletic director at Arkansas, because it really leaves two options. 
One is that he did not figure something out that apparently was not a big secret. I mean, I didn't know this. And I think a lot of us in the media and in the public did not know about the kind of program that Les Miles was, was alleged to have been running at LSU. Uh, but it's not like this was something that one or two people knew about or one or two senior people. Uh, the world of college hiring is very insular. People talk. Uh, so either Jeff Long didn't put in the effort to find that out or didn't care um, or did put in the effort and his investigative abilities were so poor that it didn't happen. Uh, any of those is disqualifying. He should never be allowed to hire anybody again uh, to do anything other than like be a contractor on his house. And I, I think Kansas needs to clean house They're like, yeah, but there, there's just, there's no redeeming reason why either of the two men in charge of Kansas football, Les Miles or Jeff Long should ever be in those roles in college sports ever again. Well, and you kind of said it in jest, Alex, but I think it's kind of worth examining. Kansas football at this point almost seems irredeemable. I mean, it's been 13, 14 years since they've been relevant at all. And it just doesn't seem like that's a pit any program can climb out of between the buyout they're still paying Charlie Weiss between the, the winless and the one win seasons. And now just mess with Jeff Long and, and Les Miles. It just, it just seems like a complete, there's no coach that could come in there and turn that around. No, probably not. I think it's an impossible job at this point. Uh, you could maybe run the triple run the triple option. Sure. Hey, I'm um, always down for that. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that, I mean, if you can get a guy like you're, you're not going to get Ken M I'm not, I'm not saying that, but like if you get a Ken Niamatololo kind of type who says, Hey, I'm going to run the triple while I have the personnel that can't run anything else. And then I'm going to kind of phase to the spread shotgun offense when I have my yeah. guys. No, Grant's giving me a look. Grant, go watch Navy last year, dude. They run, they run a shotgun spread. Um, but were they if, good? If you could do something like that, oh. no. Uh, if you okay. could do something like that, maybe, but like, man, this is my favorite podcast story. David Beatty looked me straight in the eyes of big 12 media days and said, I had 37 players when I walked onto campus and eight of them walked out the door. When I introduced myself, uh, they don't have football. They don't have college football athletes. And you just can't, you just can't, if, I feel like if you're on the triple there, you're just condemning yourself to like, I know you need to be weird and do something different, but man, they, they just got to figure out a way to get that roster built back up. They do. Uh, I think that they are one of the few power five football programs that really gen, gen, genuinely speaking does not generate enough money to be entirely self-sustaining, uh, which is weird because they do sort of, you know, through their big 12 TV deal, they do sort of fund operations for the rest of the athletic department, but at a place like Kansas, that's not the same as being self-sustaining. Cause you gotta, you gotta pour a lot of resources into hoops, uh, which is the thing that, you know, I think most athletic folks at the university of Kansas really care about, and they're just not in great financial straits football wise. I mean, you saw what they tried to do to get out of David Beatty's buyout uh, when they fired him to try to aggressively search really for NCAA violations that would get them out of that buyout. And they wound up saving, I think like a million and a half dollars. Uh, and the fact that that was a big deal to them speaks to how rough things are. To, to be fair though, between that and the Jeremy Pruitt stuff, if you pay a full buyout now, you're a sucker. Like that's wrong and that's immoral Agreed. and they're doing a bad thing. But if you're an athletic department who pays a full buyout, you're bad at your job. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. That's on the, the cold-hearted economist in me. Um, <laughs> on okay, the one hand, yes, yes. But on the other hand, you like at some point, does it come back to bite you if coaches don't think you're going to be of your word on a buyout? 
it's interesting. Also, coaches are not, you know, tragic figures here. They're fine. Yeah, no, yeah. The bio. Also, I assume I I assume there are coaches that take a job knowing, listen, if I screw up, I've got 20 mil coming my way uh, automatically. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, okay, Alex, I think the question that's been burning inside me, I've wanted to ask you this entire time. The, the 2021 Maryland Terrapins, and I intentionally saying Terrapins, uh, are going to be capable of some chaos. What, what level of chaos do you think they're going to be? Do you think they're going to beat? I, my, my theory is they're, they're going to beat somebody and it's going to be, it's going to be fun. I don't know. Uh, I'm a Maryland alum. I have been conditioned not to expect a lot. My first year at school was 2012, which was the year that, you know, Stefan Diggs and I were both freshmen at Maryland and another freshman wound up, this freshman was a linebacker, wound up playing quarterback for a third of the season because they ran out of quarterbacks. And ever since then, I haven't expected much. Uh, I think they might get somebody not, it's not going to be Ohio state. I think what you'd like out of out of Maryland is that every couple of years you will get one of the Big Ten East's biggies. Last year they got Penn State, but Penn State was obviously very bad. Um, I think that it is possible that they could get the Big Ten East's second best program, Indiana, some year. Uh, that would obviously be a, a great a great pelt for us to get if we could beat the Hoosiers. Uh, and other than that. Who knows? Is Michigan going to be good enough to qualify as getting somebody, Parker? I, th- I think if Maryland beat Michigan, I would qualify that as as getting somebody. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, we would take that. I think we've got Illinois next year, so it'd be nice to get that one. Uh, pretty sure we're going to lose to Kent State uh, at home, which is not going to be too fun. That now. game is already circled on my calendar. That yeah. game is going to be fun as hell. I hope they play that at, on Thursday night at like 9.30 p.m. Yeah, That's going to be a vested interest good. game. It's just washing over me right now, but that's not going to be great. Uh, you're not. Also, you're not ready for. You're not ready for Dustin Crumb. Yeah. No. The, the, <laughs> and the over is gonna is gonna be enticing in that one, yeah. even if it's in the seventies. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think they are capable of some chaos, but not necessarily the good kind. We'll see. Alex, we talked about your team, and I have one more question about uh, the team Ian Parker root for. Uh, we ask every podcast guest this: Alex, could you say something nice about Max Duggan? Yeah, he's a great story. He's, I mean, I, I, I honestly don't have all of the details off the top of my head, but I know that he went through some stuff that mm-hmm. could have probably should have ended his football career. And Med- medical retirement was on the table yeah. very much, yes. And he seems to have fought really hard to be able to do the thing that he loves. So that's an easy person to root for. And also he's not a bad quarterback by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, there are, I, I, would, I would say that he is pretty safely above the equator of, of FBS quarterbacks. And given everything he's been through, hey, that is that is a hell of a thing. I hope he finds his way onto an NFL roster someday. I can tell you this. I named my dog Max Doggin. So there you well, go. He's that's at least right. got that going for him. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that That is easily the best that segment has gone. Our, our answers yeah. have ranged from outright laughing to uh, legitimately our friend uh, Anthony Treesh at Pro Football Focus saying, uh, when we asked him <laughs> that. So. I will um, say that. He last year in a vested interest game for me came off the bench and threw a Hail Mary for a touchdown to go down by three, four. four. I, think they cover, I think they covered the last, like last second touchdown. But they didn't kick the extra point. 
whatever they did was they went the touchdown pushed for me at whatever number yes. I had. Yep, yep, and yep. Then fucking Gary Patterson didn't kick the extra point yep. because the game was over <laughs> and it and it resulted in a push for me. So I appreciated Max's efforts and I just wasn't particularly happy with Gary for not letting his special teamers go out there and have a chance to to get some more points. Yeah, I I I, I somehow got TCU at 3 or uh yeah, getting 3. And I think the spread was it moved to 4. I think I got them getting 3 as well. Yeah, and, yeah whatever it was. I, yeah, was yeah. People who had them what getting getting two, less like two, than that yeah and, yeah yeah two and a half or something and just half and, yeah yeah that was i mean that's a tough beat that was a that was a good don't bet on sports advertisement that day i have i have a very good piece of advice for all of you listening at home don't don't bet on tcu um we will do something stupid Alex, uh, thanks so much for coming on, man. We appreciate your time today um, and, and great chat and some really cool ideas. And just, I just, I just love thinking about what college football is and what it could be in the off season is a great time for that. So thanks so much, um, man. You've, you've been published kind of everywhere uh, this off season. I, you know, home, uh, home field advantage article in slate. Uh, you're all over the moon crew, all over split zone duo. Where can people find you and, and kind of follow along? Um, where's the best place to do that on the internet? Uh, great question. Thanks. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. I try to keep it uh, not too unbearable for you, but you'd be the judge of that. Uh, no hard feelings if you think that uh, I am failing. But I'm on Twitter uh, at underscore Alex Kirshner, K-I-R-S-H-N-E-R, and would love to talk to you on there sometime. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much, and uh, and we appreciate it, man. And we'll um, definitely be uh, following along this season as hopefully things kind of get back to normal and we uh, continue to put our money on 18-year-olds who who make mistakes and, and lose us money. Thanks, man. Go Browns.